0: Hello, my name is Declan Dineen, welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's show is Paul Kilduff-Taylor. Uh, Paul is one of the founders of Mode 7 games, creators of uh, Frozen Synapse, Frozen Synapse 2. Uh, he was actually, he was on an episode of Checkpoints just a few weeks ago. Um, I did a live show from the All Your Base Festival in Nottingham and Paul was one of the, the panelists. And just over the course of that weekend, I ended up hanging out with Paul quite a lot uh, and we got on famously and I thought, well, this, we should do a full show. And so we did, uh, and it was really good. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. We kind of, it's very kind of uh, meandering and ambling, but uh, I, I really, I really, really had a good time. It was nice to chat with with Paul, um, and actually, like quite timely, um, with GDC coming up next week. Um, there are there's some really good tips. I think just not just for like GDC, but just for in general, kind of the the kind of the, the, some of the, the perils of, of networking, especially if you can, like have a, a personality type that isn't necessarily suited to that, which. Uh, which I certainly do, and Paul certainly did. Um, but you know, it's it's a, a part of the the business, any creative endeavour. You need to build relationships. So it was just it was it was good. It was useful. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, some people will find it useful. Um, uh, sorry again for missing last week. Uh, this month has been absolutely mental. Uh, as I said, I was off at the start of February because I was recording a, a radio play for the BBC. It's very exciting. I should be on in April. Uh, last week I was actually doing some stuff at the Glasgow Film Festival. But as i don't know americans probably don't care but there was kind of the apocalypse in the uk so that all turned into just a crazy <laughs> crazy week uh, i had to get down to london I, I did this mad kind of taxi share with four strangers which was actually amazing got to meet four new friends no one was a psycho um i'm, I'm as as people who may have seen projects i did many years ago like Meet and tweets i'm a big fan of meeting strangers <laughs> from the internet um in a safe controlled way obviously um yeah so it should hopefully be back to kind of regular ish um you know weekly shows from now on although you know don't quote me on that uh things things have been very busy although next week oh my god amazing guest next week like one of those guests where you reach out to and you're like oh I, i mean i may as well give it a chance and then they're like yeah sure it's like holy shit uh so that's very exciting um, okay if you'd like to get in touch with the show for any reason whatsoever you can email it's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at checkpoint show on twitter or it's checkpointspodcast podcast on facebook it's very important to have consistent branding Uh, If you enjoy the show, please do consider leaving a review or a rating on iTunes. There's been hardly any this year. Um, You're all slacking. (laughs) You're not slacking. I mean, I listen to the shows all the time, and people do these shouts all the time. Uh, And I genuinely, because, I mean, maybe because I'm just so aware of it, I always try and kind of leave a rating or review because it takes two seconds, and and I know how much it helps other podcasts. So if you do like the show, please do do that. It's uh, very much appreciated. If you really like the show, there's a Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash Checkpoints any and all donations are very gratefully received and they all go back into making the show as good as it possibly can be. Um, and even if like, you don't have to subscribe or anything. If, if you enjoy the show, if you have enjoyed the show over several years, you know, chucking in like the cost of a pint or something for, for all the shows is uh, always massively appreciated. Okay, I think that's all the kind of um, admin stuff. It's just like, I mean, I'm not sure how many people discover the show on a weekly basis. If this happens to be your first show, welcome, obviously. I hope you really enjoy it. Um, just like to sort of because the show has been going for so long there's a lot of kind of evergreen content so to speak so just recently there's uh, two games that have come out um, one by Jason Rora and one by Subset Games which is uh, Into the Breach and A Life in a Day I believe is the or 60 Second Life I think is the the Jason Rora um, game no it's called One Hour One Life I just uh, I just googled it um, but there's interviews with uh, with both subset games uh, Justin and Matthew and with Jason Wara in the archives, and they both the, both times they're kind of in the midst of development of these games that have just come out. And I always find that quite fun, quite a fun thing to go back and listen to and see how the finished product reflects what they were working on or the problems they may have run into at that time. Um, it's, just, it's just it's a really nice thing. It's like an unexpected uh, benefit of the show that I wasn't realizing. Uh, so do dig back into the archives. Um, always there's always new things you perhaps haven't listened to before or may even want to listen to again. Um, okay, that's the end of the intro bit. I'll be back next week, as always, with a new show and a new guest. But for now, let's get on with the show. Well, let's. before we get too into that then, let's do a, a formal introduction to, to set the scene. So, uh, Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. If you don't mind, would you introduce yourself?
1: Hello, yes, uh, I'm Paul Kilduff-Taylor. I'm the co-founder of Mode 7 Games. We're an indie developer and now publisher based in Oxford. We've been going since 2005, probably best known for a strategy game that we made in 2011 called Frozen Synapse, which was a simultaneous term-based game for you strategy fans. We've done a couple of things since then, released a game called Tokyo 42 last year, and we're now working on Frozen Synapse 2. And my role in the company, it sort of encompasses wearing various different hats. Uh, I do all the audio and music. I do all the writing, little bits of game design here and there. But my business partner, Ian, is the main game designer and coder. So I'm often kind of in a support role for him. So, yeah, indie games for a while now.
0: And did you, did you find that your, yourself, like the two of you together decided to set this up yourself?
1: That's right. Well, Ian was working on a game when he was at university um, and he wanted music for it. And I started to, to do that. Uh, I, I'd done music sort of since I was about 14. Um, yeah. And Ian and I kind of grew up together. We were we were mates um, from a, quite a young age. So he asked me to do music. And then I left university and sort of tried to get jobs and things and and, and got a certain way and then kept failing. And I thought, well, I don't really want to do any of these things. I quite like to just work on games. Uh, so we decided to start a company and kind of do it semi properly and uh, Mode 7 was born
0: How exciting um, and like yeah I should mention that we met a few weeks ago which I mean you were on the podcast a few weeks ago even at the All Your Bass Festival which was the, the video game music festival Yes, um, you did like a live set which was very interesting <laughs> because like you had said you, we we'd hung out the evening before and went to see the Esther, which was amazing Yes, um, but that was the first time you had ever kind of played your music live in, in that kind of setting you know
1: yeah, well, I've done lots of dance music stuff and, and, and sort of crazy stuff when I was younger. I, I was quite influenced by, there's an artist called Kid 606 and he kind of did crazy pop music mashup stuff. So I did a lot of that kind of just, which is just about being as entertaining as you can. It's kind yeah. of almost musical comedy. So I've done a lot of that stuff and I'd never done soundtrack stuff live because it's not really, you know, it's a soundtrack. It's supposed to be a, accompanied by the game and it tends to be quite low key. Yeah. So it was interesting playing around with that. I mean, we had a small room with an audience sitting down, which was quite nice nice i was going where i kind of envisaged it was uh, was like that so uh, so it was good yeah and i'd like to do more of that because uh, i think it's quite nice to actually focus on on music that's generally consigned to the background uh, yeah. and actually listen to it
0: and uh, do you, like, I, I didn't realize you used to do mashups They're like actual mashups yeah all kinds of
1: stuff Yeah, you know, taking sort of you know 1960s pop songs speeding them up to 200 bpm and putting kind of the amen break on them and just stupid stuff like that I had a guitar that i used to wear that was kind of trigger <laughs> drum and bass stuff over pop music and all
0: kinds of stuff like that um and I, it, I, i've I got just, such yeah. a fondness for mashup though like i really that seems to be very much um that seems to have kind of gone away a bit now. i'm sure it hasn't but there was a period in the kind of like mid to late 2000s where it was mm. like there was a lot of brilliant stuff and like i remember i wrote an article about it for um god what magazine was it? i forget the magazine and basically kind of tracing it because like i was really interested in how that genre of music specifically if you can if you can even call it a genre mm. um is, is one of the first kind of uh genres that existed because of the internet, you know, like, yes, exactly. If you yeah, talk about yeah. like, you know, Detroit has a sound that has like Motown and then it had like, you know, Iggy and the Stooges and then techno and stuff, and it's very much of that place. And yeah, it, like, yeah. mashups felt like this is the music of the internet in a way. And I think it's still kind of true, you know, in, in a sense, mm. this like melding of genres.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it was about the fact that you could get control over music that was served to you all the time. Absolutely, so you yeah. had all this pop music that that was that was kind of coming at you. And then it was a way of I mean, I remember that the first time I heard Kid 606 was I was in Canada and I lived in this terrible house in the basement. It was really cold. And I had a a little radio and there was an amazing show called Brave New Waves um, that used to be on those. One of the Canadian national broadcasters, I think, had that on. Okay. Um, And that had it had a live Kid 606 set. And just him playing kind of like Eminem tracks with four to the floor kind of kick drums on them and, and just stuff. I just never heard anyone do that before. Um, and I thought, actually, that's not that hard to do. <laughs> and, it's, <laughs> and it's quite fun. Um, so. So, yeah, it was it's definitely this kind of idea of reclaiming the stuff that was served to you. And you're absolutely right. You know, it just kind of came from the Internet and it, it came a lot when. That kind of audio technology was emerging, you know, it was easier to play around with sort of the the entire audio file of a song. So it was it was a very specific thing of its time. And yeah, it's not done so much anymore. I mean, I think one one aspect of it is you I think it's kind of (laughs) for for the younger people. Now I'm going to make myself sound old and grumpy, but it's one of those things where it's a kind of punk form in a way. You know, it's very aggressive and very you know it's almost ha- sort of hatred of the audience stuff that goes into that. That You're trying to push the audience as far as they can go. Um, and it's so really it's, interesting, yeah.
0: I think, in how like the, the, the kind of the birth of the mashup, that kind of era was also kind of when, to me at least, it felt like um the tribalism of music started to, to fall away as well. Like, I don't yes. think you have yeah. that now. Like, teenagers today again it make me sound old like kids today. Exactly. um, I I don't see that, like, certainly in nieces and nephews and stuff, and in in younger people that I know, they don't have that same sense of musical tribalism, you know, where you are into this type of music and that defines the type of person you are because Mm. you just set up a Spotify playlist of a million different genres back to back and it's all fine yeah
1: i mean if you you have simultaneous access to all music that's yeah. ever been produced you know i think that you have to be quite committed to be like no i will only listen to these three bands in that context the, the, i'm sure people do um you know and you still get the sort of weird genre arguments every youtube video uh, you know is, has what genre is this and then a 30 comment argument afterwards so people are still very into classifying it but i think that that is because they're being served more diverse stuff they just yeah. kind of want to know what it is uh, a lot of the time you like I like
0: the subgenres yes um, well let's um ooh I, I spiked it there let's uh let's delve back then paul and uh, and talk about some video games so mm. if you can remember uh, what was your very first experience of a video game
1: so I have a couple of these. My dad was a teacher um, at a boarding school. He was an IT teacher. So he had access to kind of um, computers sort of that we wouldn't necessarily have at home. He actually had a network of 186s, uh, PC 186s, and he wrote the networking protocol for them. So the first thing that I ever played that was like a game, he wrote a program for me when I was a kid. I think it was about three um, where if you touched any key on the keyboard, it would sort of flash colors on the screen and make a beeping sound. Uh, and that's kind of defined various aspects of my career ever since. <laughs> so that's, that was the first experience. And I do actually remember that, or at least I think I do. It's very but primal, we had...
0: like press a button. Exactly,
1: right. Yeah. It's colors like colors and sounds. <laughs> the proto game. So there was that. Um, we had BBC micros as well, or rather the, the school did. So there was a game called Contraption. Uh, which is a pretty obscure BBC micro game, but it was a platformer. And there was a little guy walking around. He had to collect apples and throw them into a giant trumpet, and then jump <laughs> up and down on the on the trumpet keys. Um, so I remember that. Also, my mum playing Chucky e. Egg a lot. She was she's the hardcore gamer in the family. So she would play enormous numbers of hours of Chucky e. Egg. Um, so yeah, it was it was those very sort of basic 8-bit, very British uh, yeah. games, I remember.
0: And whereabouts in the in the, the world is this? I'm assuming it's in the UK somewhere.
1: Yeah, this was in uh, in Scotland. Yeah, so we, we, we lived in Scotland and then I, I moved down to Oxford uh, when I was five. I didn't five. know
0: that. Whereabouts in Scotland?
1: Uh, so it was a, a village called Duffus, which is kind of near a town called Elgin, uh, okay, yeah. which is sort of roughly near Inverness kind of area. Yeah, it's yeah. quite far north.
0: Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. And yeah. uh, I always find that interesting in the way that, you know, uh, you kind of tend to get kind of two versions of the kind of family history where it's their uh, parents are completely against it in every way possible <laughs> or they're already invested in that. And so it's just a natural progression that, of mm. course, the kids are going to play along with it. And the fact that not only did you, I, I mean, I'm assuming that they kind of they were fine with you playing games, but your dad was actually yeah. writing Things for you like this will amuse the child. Just sounds and (laughs) colours, fast-paced. Exactly. Yeah. No, I
1: I I always saw that computers as kind of this lovely, friendly thing that I very much associated with my dad. You know, I would he would go in to switch the computers off at night. The kid kids were allowed to use the network sort of after school uh, and do projects and things. And he would go in and switch the computers off. And I I would go in with him sometimes. Be a bit older at this stage, sort of like five five years old. Yeah. Um, And I I just remember that as a really sort of lovely experience. So the computer for me was always like this kind of exciting gateway to new stuff that was really different and and really exciting. Yeah. And and it was very much part of our family.
0: Yeah. I always find that interesting because like depending on people's age and stuff, like your first computer or your first console can seem like this kind of monolithic thing. Whereas for you, I imagine it was just it was always there. And it was like your dad sort of saying, "I'll oh, come and have a look at this," and that's yeah, fine, so and it's just normal.
1: That's right. We started off with with stuff like that, but I remember um, that I didn't get a games console until the Game Gear. Uh, came out, and I really, really wanted an NES, and I dropped lots of hints to my parents, and uh, and they they sort of they didn't get me one, <laughs> I think, because uh, they sort of didn't didn't want me to kind of have every toy possible in the world. Yeah, you know, they, they 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 were they were very much of that sort of mindset. Did you so have that was really cool. No, no, I was an only child. Okay, yeah. Um, so the, the NES I remember was just a thing that friends had at their houses and I, I would go one of my friends had it and we, we'd go and play Nintendo World Cup and, uh, and Mario and I just remember the thing that always struck me was the music on the NES um, just some incredible music particularly Nintendo World Cup I always remember those those tunes and, and just the weird the weird graphics uh, as well just weren't like anything I'd seen before. So I remember that that was sort of object of great desire for me. And then eventually getting getting the Game Gear, um, well, that was kind of when I when I had a console and I could I could really explore that side of things.
0: And how, like, were you disappointed with the game year? It's a bit of an odd one, the game year, because it's yeah. so futuristic and yet so old-fashioned all at once, you know?
1: <laughs> well, I had that. I, I sort of was, but it was kind of a, a, a happy disappointment. So there was a computer store where I lived. It was an independent computer store called Computer Run. Uh, and this was this was in Oxfordshire yeah, now, uh, so we kind of moved down there. And he, the, the guy who ran that... Um, He had, you know, you go and there was the massive sort of wall of Mega Drive games and like the massive wall of SNES games. And then this tiny section of Game Gear games. And although that was annoying, I kind of liked it because you had to like you had to get to know everything. You had to know whether all of the different Game Gear games were good. And it was such a huge investment to uh, to get one um so obviously sonic was great on the game gear stuff like super kickoff was a really good master system port uh i played that a huge amount and then i very have a very strong memory of buying a game called dragon sphere which was the only game i bought without reading a review and it was absolutely terrible and so that was (laughs) like i learned that you never buy a game without reading the the review and i I just regretted that purchase decision for such a long time
0: (laughs) big Um, impact was it um like we were talking earlier about kind of music tribalism and like games thing is less so now, although maybe not less so now, maybe I'm just a bit older and I don't care as much. But like, were you, was that part of your childhood? Like, you know, you had a Game Gear, you wanted to Nintendo, were you conflicted or were you, you put your your sort of flag to the last, <laughs> so to speak?
1: Yeah, no, I was, I was a Sega kid. I definitely thought Sega was better. Uh, I remember Sega Power, which I used to read a lot, they called the NES a plastic lunchbox. And I I really thought, yeah, it does look like a plastic lunchbox. All the Sega stuff is a lot cooler. So I would go around and sort of call it a plastic lunchbox to my friends to sort of seem cool.
0: They've got a lot of answer for, video game magazines, in their kind of promotion of tribalism (laughs) amongst the youth. Sega are the best, objectively. Mm. Sonic is cooler. Um, No, I really
1: really believed that for a while. I definitely definitely bought into it, and it it was Sega Power's fault.
0: Yeah, I, I switched. I was fully Sega because I had a mass system. And then, funnily enough, when I got a Super Nintendo, I just completely switched allegiances. So there's no, right. I have no integrity whatsoever. I am, uh, <laughs> I am a glory hunter, 100%. And also kind of, I mean, it's kind of true. Although I never really played on the, the, the NES very much. It was a very, mm. like, which I always find weird that when I speak to Americans, like everyone has a, a NES or had a NES at some point in their life. It, yeah. uh, it was a very odd, obscure console to me, really. Yes. Because um, I didn't know anyone that had one. It was, it was very weird.
1: I remember all the games were really hard as well. Like I couldn't play Mario because I, I sort of, I just, I just didn't get it, and it, it didn't gel with me. Because I think a lot of kids had that experience of. It was a very very new thing, and they really wanted to figure it out. And they got to spend a lot of time with it. But I only got to very briefly play it at friends' houses, and I would die all the time. They go, "Oh, you're rubbish," and they just take the controller off me and you know go, "This is how you do it," kind of thing. Um, so I never, I never kind of got into that. We did have a PC uh, at the time as well, but that was more for sort of grown-up stuff like King's Quest. That my my parents would play King's Quest a lot, uh, and my mum would play Tetris again, sort of to a i think she could have gone pro in tetris at that point um so that was that was not something i got involved with until a bit later um pc gaming
0: Um, but like given the kind of what your your dad was doing was that um was the kind of the, the technical side of things kind of demystified quite young like in terms of this is did you have an idea i guess of how games were made and how they worked? like was your dad quite keen to teach you about that in any sense
1: so, uh, I didn't really, because he sort of left the technical side of things. He went to work for a company um, that was selling computers to schools. So he moved into a, into a business role and got right, kind okay. of completely out of programming and and didn't really do much of the technical stuff. So I didn't really have a sense of of how they were made. Um, but I definitely had a sense of sort of, this idea of of the promise of a game and 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 kind of whether a game would live up to that promise or not was was a really important thing for me so i was I was always trying to suss out you know from screenshots and from reviews and everything else trying to figure out if a game was really going to be as good as as people said it was so that was kind of my relationship with games who were was sort of is this going to deliver the experience i want but i really wasn't thinking about how they were made uh, at that age
0: and what about kind of um like friendship groups and stuff because i always find that that's quite uh like a lot of the friends that I've made over the years and you know still have like that are made in school, it was bonding over a thing like yes, he- man toys at some point, or you know transformers or or video games eventually. and that was very much how I formed my my friendship group. So was that true for you?
1: Yeah, massively so. Um, a, a lot of a lot of Street Fighter at primary school, I remember. Mega Drive Street Fighter was, was something that, that kind of everyone played. And then, yeah, I had a, I had a friend um, and his parents had quite a few PC games. So they had Wing Commander and Doom. And, and I would go and sort of stay there for, for the weekend. And we would just basically just play games and then walk around outside. So we sort of had two modes, inside and outside. Uh, and we played through the entirety of Wing Commander with one person sort of flying the ship and one person shooting or something like that but just like trying to trying to co-op it on a single keyboard (laughs) um and and that so yeah a lot of those early memories definitely were i would seek out people who were into games and 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 really wanted to kind of uh get very very deep into them um so a lot of happy memories uh, around that time yeah
0: and like do you feel i guess like in in retrospect that you're That you were kind of more into games than other things or was that just another part of your your life like did did it did it start to feel like part of your identity as you were a kid you know growing up
1: yeah i think it did i think it did sort of come to be be part of my identity in some ways um but i always i mean i always had music so i always had things sort of outside games i definitely don't resonate as much with people who say sort of the only solace or the only enjoyment they got was from games. Um. It was just a part of what I did you know with friends um, rather rather than that so I know that I know that some people really really kind of cling to games and and those experiences are almost more profound for them Um, so that's something that that I don't share yeah Um, but yeah it was it was just a big a big component it's just very very specific memories for me things like playing day of the tentacle uh, and then going to school and sitting in a really boring lesson and then figuring out the answer to a puzzle in the lesson and knowing that that was the answer, That's and just good. being so desperate to go home and try it, just just uh, consumed What was the puzzle if you idea. remember? Um, it was the mummy. Uh, it was having to paint the mummy, uh, and then winch the mummy up into the into oh, the into top
0: floor. Top floor room. Oh my god. Yeah,
1: cousin Fred or Ed yes. or which? Yeah, because uh, that was a terrible puzzle, and I don't know why it was. It was some weird intuitive leap. It might have been because it was an art lesson and I was thinking about painting things or something like that. Um but but it's it's like little little things like that really kind of defined my relationship with games as a kid. Just these really profound, like specific moments.
0: It's really interesting that like I I don't know that games exist in that same way now. You know the way that they Yeah they exist in your head. Because similar (laughs) for me, like Day of Tentacle was like I mean it probably was only a few months, but in my head it was like a year of my life that me and my yes. friends spent trying to solve it. I remember the one that stands out to me was the putting the the jumper on the the hamster. Right, and you yeah, have to yeah. like that's a, put it that's in the a past classic. and then like shrink yep. it in the future. Um, and I like I don't know if that exists. Like I don't have actually. No, saying that, have you played Monster Hunter? No, I haven't. No, I started playing Monster Hunter when it came out, and I've not played it before. And I got really into it, and then I had to go away. I was away all of last week. Uh, And that kind of, that just existed. I found myself kind of thinking through loadouts and methods and timings and stuff. Yeah, And it was a really, like an oddly pleasant experience that it was just this game just carried on ticking over in my head, even Mm -hmm. though I had no access to it. Um, I find that really quite, I think it takes a very sort of specific and kind of special game for that to be, a good feeling as well you know for it not yes. to feel like that's a cheat and I should just be a play a whole thing in a wonder if I want
1: one of my criterion for uh, criteria sorry for, for games that we make is um, can you think about the game when you're not playing it in a meaningful way is it kind oh, of especially especially important for a strategy game but it, it, it plays into some aspects of narrative as well you know I, I think a really great game can make its space in your brain and sort of burrow in there and just give you a nice thing to think about when you're not playing absolutely uh, yeah yeah
0: it's a real and, and that's i think that's a very um very kind of unique game thing you know that's one of the things that make them so good is that these kind of intangibles of like yeah. oh well, this is this is a thing i mean i actually know i suppose that's true of like films and books but it's more of that's more abstract thinking about a concept maybe or a character yeah, rather than kind of solving a little puzzle in your head, which is very satisfying. Mm.
1: I mean, I, th- I kind of think the same about music as well in the I try to write music where you can remember the melody if you you know haven't listened to it for a while or you kind of at least get a sense of that piece of music that, it, that stays with you. Um, and obviously with music, you can go too far. You know, you can go too far with catchiness uh, and, and things like that. And it just becomes an annoying. So there's a balance there where a melody is saying something interesting uh and and memorable and you can sing it uh that's so much electronic music doesn't have that still and that's always been important to me
0: well um well how about sort of as you as you get older like do you feel like your relationship with games changed at any point like did you become more or less invested or were they just kind of a constant presence through your youth well, I stopped playing
1: games uh, for a few years when I was kind of 15, 16, because that's when, you know, music really started kicking off for me. And I, I started to be able to, you know, buy a little bit of equipment and, and, and start producing music. So, so it's really all about that. So I kind of completely missed like the PS1 era uh, and, and missed a, a big chunk of I really kind of stopped playing around like 97. So a kind of quake ish was that 96 okay. i think and was that like uh, yeah. a
0: conscious thing because you wanted to or was it just naturally your interest kind of I just didn't have time like it wasn't that
1: i sort of lost interest it was that now i have to spend all my time doing music because that's what i do now <laughs> <laughs> but that sounds uh,
0: like that sounds like it's um like it's suddenly your job as opposed to just i'm just more interested this gives me more pleasure than playing <laughs> games you know i i'm kind of not happy unless i,
1: I kind of consider something to be my job okay uh, i i didn't really kind of couch it in those terms it was just like the right thing to do was for me to to write music then uh, and i kind of wish i still had that that same driver things now i i, I don't <laughs> I, was, I was very sort of it almost felt moral to me at that point yeah that, no, that, i see that, that. I had to I get do that. that. Um, I've only
0: developed that recently, though. That certainly wasn't the case when I was a kid.
1: Right. Yeah. Then uh, I was a little bit unusual uh, at that age. So, so I kind of, uh, I kind of did that. And then I, I, I remember, so just before I was about to go off to university, I was in the pub with, uh, with Ian, my now business partner, and one of our friends, and they were talking about Deus Ex. Uh, and and I just, thought, what this, what's this? It just sounds incredible. And and they just said, you know, y- y- if you're going to play a game again ever, you should play this um so i got i got deus ex and i just absolutely was was totally sucked into that because i kind of skipped you know a a period of gaming history and then you come back straight into that and you just think oh my god this is incredible you know you can choose what you do you can define sort of what your character is and there's a whole world and a whole story that you're actually participating in yeah Uh, that was really really different for me so i sort of have the uh the rather cliched, excessive PC gamer love for Deus Ex One, uh, still. But uh, and I completed that. I didn't finish many games, sort of, ever really in my life. I wasn't not a very completionist person with games, but I I finished that when I was at university um, in my first year, and just had a massive impact on me.
0: That's really interesting. Like I often think, like I had a, a very similar um, experience where, like, when I was about sixteen, I sold all of my video game stuff, which wasn't a lot of stuff in order to fund uh, a new amplifier because I was in a band and that was going to be my life now. Um, <laughs> right. And it was only weirdly, I say weirdly, I don't know why I say weirdly, but um, Tony Hawk's was the thing that kind of pulled me back in. Right, um, yeah. And and that was like a real defining part of my life because there was just, there was something, like I played Super Mario 64, that was like, that was the last console I had was Nintendo 64. Yeah. And I sold it and to come back like, kind of late ps1 right. dreamcast yeah. series oh my god look at games now part of me kind of wants to try that again you know just i'm gonna stop <laughs> playing games and ignore video games for like three years that'd be great and yeah come back and be like right what are games like now <laughs> and I, I, I genuinely i don't know if that's possible anymore you know i don't know mm. if you can look away in the same way that you used to be able to do you know i don't know that'd be possible for any kind of cultural medium
1: I, yeah i don't know i do have friends who who sort of stopped playing games kind of around around university age you know i'm sort of mid 30s now and i I will show them stuff occasionally and they'll go wow you know (laughs) and i kind of think oh no am i am enabling some terrible habit (laughs) that's gonna it's gonna return um so i think i think it might be possible i don't think it's worth forcing yourself to play games you know there was a while i was trying to keep up with with everything that was coming out yeah and i don't think that's good actually Uh, uh well, you know I mean obviously people people are different and, and everyone can do what they want but uh, but for me certainly it's, it's not great to sort of feel like I have to play everything if something's if something's good it'll stand out enough for me to for me to check it out um, I think the last thing I got really heavily into was prison architect um, okay. when that came out sort of 1.0 I, I spent an entire day playing just playing prison architects and i hadn't done that with the game for years um just such a brilliant translation of your abstract idea of what you should be doing into into the game so you, again you can really think about it in abstract what would i do what's my concept for this prison i'm gonna build this really high density one or this really luxurious one and you can just do it yeah pretty seamlessly um there's a lot so of that really great sound
0: me. design in that as well yes, um, yes and i know same. this because of our our panel because I did a lot of research on Alistair Lindsay and realized it was the wrong Alistair Lindsay. Uh, right, yes. <laughs> but it was a different Alistair Lindsay who did the same prison architect and it's yep. honestly some amazing kind of conceptual stuff that I think you wouldn't notice um but that would still work if you know what I mean like the, these kind of invisible touches that yeah, it's, sort it's... of give you the impact that you don't you don't notice but they are there and they really make a, a difference.
1: It's very subtle, and Alistair's work on all of Introversion's games—I think he's done all of them—is um, so, yeah. really good. Uh, really, really great use of sound design, and sound design can really help if you have a kind of minimalist aesthetic or um, or a sort of stylized aesthetic. It can really ground the player and provide some emotional context. And it does. Yeah, he's he's brilliant. He's a genius.
0: So, so when you go to university and you're playing Deus Ex, and I'm assuming mm. you've gone to university to do some kind of music thing, given your. Your passion for it. <laughs> I did English. Oh, of um, course you did. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know why
1: I didn't like studying. I was studying going to be music, a rock star. But...
0: I did English as well.
1: Uh, right. Okay. Yeah. I, weirdly, a lot of people who are in the business end of games did English degrees. I'm just noting this, noticing this increasingly. It's because they're uh, the
0: ones who had the most free time, so they <laughs> they were able to just spend all day playing <laughs> an NBA Jam Three or an NBA Street Three, um, which is exactly what I did. Uh, and burnout yeah. three and all of these games to university and final level. Although to be fair, I don't work in games.
1: Uh, well it, it, it's true. Yeah, you do not have to work particularly hard <laughs> to do an English. Oh you have to work don't... very hard, but just all it's all in
0: your head. <laughs> you, so have to work, you have to of... work
1: very hard at the end. That's what that's what I did. Did almost nothing until the end. Um Yeah. Uh, yes. No, Yeah. I went to university to to do an extra music. I I didn't really get on very well with formal music study. Um, certainly not kind of the, you know, I didn't even do GCSE music. I I just, it just didn't interest me. I was much more interested in kind of bashing out weird stuff myself than I was in learning music theory, which of course has come back to bite me later on in life (laughs) because I wish I did know some of that stuff now. But, um, yeah uh so i was i was doing that uh and really interested in sort of the potential for games to have not necessarily more more story but just writing that was uh a bit more interesting than the writing i'd seen again and deus ex was it was definitely a step towards that for me it was it was a step towards world building at least that was unique and coherent okay uh, yeah. so do
0: you think was that the thing that kind of pulled you back into thinking about games as like Maybe this is something I can do. Was it the writing as opposed to the music?
1: It was or more the potential that,
0: for writing, at least.
1: It was more that games in general were much more interesting than the other things that I sort of had available to me. Um, I was doing freelance writing uh, when I when I left university. I, I started doing freelance writing for uh, a magazine called Computer Music, which is a brilliant, uh, brilliant magazine, uh, and they were very kind and sort of uh, teaching me in some ways how to how to be a freelance writer so i yeah. i i did that with them i was also applying for marketing jobs so i applied to a academic book publisher to do a marketing job and, and i just thought um i was sitting on a bus and i just thought i don't i don't enjoy this i want to do something that enables me to work creatively on, on, on something that people are going to see that's going to be interesting and uh and that spurred me on to kind of get further involved with what ian was doing and, and, and get further involved with games so it, it wasn't sort of particularly that i that i'd always wanted to make games it was that well i have this weird set of skills and games are really interesting and i have an opportunity to do it so it was, it's was a combination of those things
0: and so it had um ian like were you still in touch with him so had he done things at this point and you're like oh maybe i'll Maybe I'll jump on his coattails and uh, see what he's doing. (laughs) Yeah, so he'd been making this
1: the game that became Determinants, which was our first game that came out in sort of two thousand and six, two thousand and seven-ish time. He'd been making that. It kind of evolved out of his final year university project. So he was working in a game engine called Torque which was the Tried 2 game engine that was owned by Dynamics. And it was the first sort of indie licensable game engine. I think you paid like $250 and you got a license to use the engine. And there was literally nothing else. So he um, he was messing around with that uh, to learn how to, to do some sort of game programming stuff. And then that turned into this idea for a flying sword fighting game. And I'd been making music for it since... Sort of my first year, which So, were you in the university together? Uh, we overlapped. Uh, we were we were at different universities, but we overlapped in time. I think by by like one year. So he graduated like in my second year, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was just working on that, working on that, working on that, and and I was just doing music, so nothing else. I would contribute bits and pieces of music. Um, so it was the decision to kind of go to him and go like, Hey, maybe you know, maybe we can work together. So the, the, we started off. He paid me to do some some marketing work and some other work uh initially and then and i said like well what, what if we were partners and we and we did it that way um yeah so so yes it was the opportunity being there was 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 huge for me and were uh, there like know...
0: other games from this period though that kind of like i mean because you're saying like asx kind of was the thing that kind of pulled you back into it so i'm assuming that would have kind of opened up a whole world of stuff for you to, it... to, to be thinking like oh this is a, an area that i would like to be involved in
1: i didn't really a lot of a lot of the rest of the time at university i was playing streets of rage 2 with a friend of mine so that wasn't exactly a, a contemporary game but we we would play that an enormous amount uh sort of almost every day at one point just kind of this weird
0: reassuring thing that we and did is that, like as you mentioned that that's your like favorite game music or one of your favorite yeah. game musics is that part of it like surely not <laughs> Uh, yeah, part, of knowing, part of it is knowing
1: knowing the, the music really well um yeah. so having that affinity for it yeah no it, it was part of it i think it's kind of a really stupid game in, in a lot of ways it's a very low low brain power game uh mostly pressing buttons at the right time um so that was that was part of it but yeah uh, i didn't play much else I remember playing half-life 2 and not really enjoying it and then sort of reading about people's reactions to half-life 2 um and then what what did you
0: like about it that's that's interesting Uh,
1: i just found it really like i played half-life 1 that's right i played half-life 1 at university as well so i i came off that and i really loved that it was fantastic and i was excited for half-life 2 uh, and then I played it and I just, it was, it's nothing like Half-Life 1. It's such a different game. Uh, it, it really takes the approach of being hugely linear. Um, and a lot of the kind of cool stuff in that game is sort of these scripted things. I just found it a bit forced. Um, like it was trying to railroad me into having these great experiences all the time. And that that was, the, I was so amused by the kind of, there was a period where the games press loved to pit Warren Specter and Gabe Newell against each other. Be like, well... The Warren Specter approach to this would be X, and then the new approach would be Y. So that 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 sort of uh, conflict was was very much happening in, in those sort of games. And I definitely was on the Warren Specter side of things. You know, I I wanted there to be cool stuff in the game that I didn't see. Okay. Uh, and Valve's approach was to, you know, I read this thing that in their user testing, if something emergent happened that was cool, they would then script it to make sure it happened to every player. And that feels like sacrilege to me. Um, that that just felt completely wrong. And Ian sort of really has a very hard line on that kind of stuff as well. I don't know. I don't know why that is. It just it just feels like like the game. Yeah, it's it's the sort of possibility space versus roller coaster idea, Um, and both are obviously valid. You know, and and sort of having you grow up a bit and you sort of realise. You know, I'll happily play a Call of Duty game or something like that because if you accept the terms that it's presenting you with, then you have a good time. But being a sort of grumpy student, I didn't. I wasn't into Half-Life 2.
0: I'm I'm fascinated that there doesn't seem to be more kind of um, important kind of milestone games for you that that. you know, in order to sort of think, okay, here's my life as it is. I'm I'm at a stage where, like, talking of possibility spaces, here's a million things that I could do theoretically. Mm. Um, and yet, yeah, but I, I'm going to go, I think games is, is a place I'd like to be without yeah. having some transformative, I mean, maybe you don't need that. I mean, who knows? I think Clearly it was, it was, like...
1: it was that thing, you know, I, I've described it. It was always, it's always been around me and it, it, it's, it, it's never been one thing that, that sort of, that's driven me, um, to do it i mean i remember I, I was i was traveling and i kind of needed a job to earn some money and i worked in a video game store you know it's always just been the the thing that i kind of gravitated towards as uh, as like this thing that's a good a good thing to do with my life how i was working um, in a video
0: game store
1: uh interesting yeah so this was in canada um in vancouver it was a branch of electronics boutique in the pacific center
0: which is still there in the same
1: location uh, uh so what took
0: you to, to canada sorry just to contextualize it
1: Oh, sure. So this was, uh, I was very lucky and privileged uh, to be able to take a gap year when I left school. Um, and I wanted to travel around Canada because I thought it was interesting. And I went there and lived in Vancouver for six months. And then I traveled around Canada with a friend of mine for the rest of the time um, and was trying to earn money out there to fund that. Uh, and a yeah, really so it's... interesting
0: gap year choice.
1: You know? uh, yeah, a bit, bit unusual. Um, well, I visited Canada before and I just thought it was great. And I wanted to get out of the UK and go and live somewhere else. Um, okay. And Vancouver is amazing. It's a really, really great place to spend time. I'm sure it uh, is. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so, so I, I worked there and it was, it was fascinating. I mean, y- you had things like customers coming in and kicking off because their PC wouldn't run a game. And they were angry with you because you'd sold them the game. So you'd obviously done that deliberately. And I learned a huge amount about...
0: So you're in Canada, in, though, so they're very polite. So it's, it's <laughs>
1: No, funny. no. Oh, no. You'd be surprised. Uh, you know, having having the the boss kind of the, the store manager come and, and back me up and say, you know, if you ever talk to one of my staff like that again, I will get more security to throw you out of the building. <laughs> it's, just a, it's just a wonderful kind of uh, example of how to back up your stuff. Yeah. So that was good. Uh, there was a guy called Noel who they hired to be sort of extra... Coverage, um, and he would spend almost all of the time in the stock room and just refuse to come out and serve customers. And I came in one day, and someone who was working there uh, just sort of scowled at me. And I said, what "What's up, mate?" And he went, oh, I, "I can't, I don't want to tell you." And he said, "What's up?" And he said, "Noel ate my donut. I left a donut in the stock room, and Noel ate it. And that was the final straw for Noel, and he was he was kicked out after that." <laughs> so. Just this just the tragic tale of Noel. Tragic tale of Noel. Yeah, he was a customer. He was a regular customer, and they hired him because they thought he'd be knowledgeable. But he would just spend. We don't know what he was doing in that. But he would spend all of his time in the stock room. Um, so I, those man, were. Good,
0: I want to. I want to hear Noel's story
1: which <laughs> I wish I knew more about Noel. Such a mystery. Uh, those were. Those were really, really good times. Um, and again, sort of. It, it, just seeing people's reactions to games you, you'd see so really great stuff you know people come in they'd be wanting to get something for ages and they maybe they reserved it and you would get it for them um you see it kind of come in you'd, you'd unbox like the the shipment of games that you get and you go oh, i know that's for this guy i remember him reserving it and then you see the opposite side like parents coming in just trying to buy a game for their kids for christmas and you go well what what Games does your son like? They go, oh, I, I don't really know. And you go, okay, well, what what's your son into? Is he into sports? Is he into this? And they'd just be like shaking their head and shrugging, and you just think, okay, <laughs> great. Well, let's try and come up with something good to maybe like inject some happiness into this kid's terrible childhood. <laughs> um, so it was it was really really interesting and and just seeing people's reactions to games and and uh, the whole spectrum of of that was was cool and definitely an experience I sort of carried with me when. Um, when we were working in games, I was reading uh, Penny Arcade a lot at that time because I felt like I didn't know enough about games uh, And I, I needed to be knowledgeable to sort of okay. help customers So I, I I would read Penny Arcade uh, as one of my means of like Penny Arcade and Blues News Um which is, a, is an ancient website, which is still going, uh, and that had all the games news, and then Penny Arcade was obviously sort of the opinion thing. Yeah. Uh, and two massive highlights of my kind of career subsequently was our first game was on Blues News. It had a terrible comment story, which was just people bashing it, but that didn't matter. I managed to get on there. And then later on, I was lucky enough to write for Penny Arcade. Um, Jerry uh, massively kindly let me let me write in sort of the, the opinion slot on there, talk about game development, which was just, incredible to me um, so
0: exciting yeah yeah so, so those are the things actually that kind of made me happy i mean so the, <laughs> of everything
1: we've done those sort uh, of
0: first websites though they were very much kind of they felt like a natural progression of the video game magazines i think we talked about this when yes. we were in, in nottingham that you know how formative that was because it felt like joining a club you know this is yeah. this yeah. is the world these are the these are the people that understand you know and it's full of in jokes and references which i don't yeah. I don't feel that you get as much with, I mean, certainly with the bigger sort of video game sites now. Mm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, it, it it was this connection to sort of, uh, I guess, I guess a community, but but it but it was more sort of just the the weirdness of it in some ways. Absolutely. No? Yeah. Yeah. Penny Arcade was a very very strange sort of, and it's it's it, it changed you no know, so much over the years, and and is a totally different thing now, and was a totally different thing sort of. 10 years ago and then you know before that but but at that time it, w- it was just like this this funny It was almost like a kind of late-night US talk show yes. Where if you're from the UK and you watch like letterman you really don't know who anyone is and you barely know Half of the things that he's talking about you get some of the jokes and that's what's fascinating about it and so sort of penny okay was always that for me early on
0: Um that's so interesting so uh, how was the um how was the sort of transition into into games then like like how quickly did you become more kind of ensconced in this company and things pretty quickly i mean
1: ian kind of gave me the chance to uh to work more intensely on it and and so i was just over there at his house all the time i remember sort of painting terrain in the talk terrain editor just doing all these things that i never thought i would do um had to learn how to do foley so um audio sort of sound effects design and I was buying sand from a hardware store and recording myself <laughs> jumping up and down on sand which was sort of turned out to be terrible but kind of made it into the final game anyway doing voice recording sessions We just got some friends who are student actors to do voice recording again. It was terrible, but uh, you know We, we were just doing everything. we were trying to make trying to make a game and, and we were looking at companies like introversion um Because they had done uplink and defcon by this point. Uh, yeah, and no, sorry uplink and darwinia and I remember darwinia getting like a big preview in in edge and this is the first time I'd ever seen a game not by a big company get that kind of coverage yeah. in Edge. And I knew that Introversion had an office uh, and I knew they had staff. So I thought, well, if they can afford to have an office and staff and we're just in a room in someone's house, we don't have any staff, then surely financially
0: that will work out okay. Briefly, a quick Introversion story. That I, I spoke to Margaret Robertson, who was the editor of edge probably around that time actually that time yeah absolutely she was telling me about um which i this story i didn't know about introversion where i think it was uplink the first game i think it was yeah they made it and didn't really know what to do with it so they literally took copies of it into like a virgin megastore and thought well (laughs) you sell games can you sell (laughs) this game for us and weirdly like they they kind of did help them out and they they spoke to the manager and the manager got in touch with like distribution companies and it all yep. ended up working out but i love that kind of the the, the optimistic kind of naivety of it of like yeah i'll just well they sell games maybe they'll sell our game that no, is like the best way that. to learn about retail distribution course, yep. <laughs> yeah um, and so, so no, it, sorry did it work out in the way that you thought it would then like was it a, was the kind of journey to to shipping the first game was that I mean, I'm sure it was quite an intense learning experience, but did it go like you? You see, introversion. You're like, oh, we could do that. Kind of. Is that how it worked out for you? Uh,
2: it
1: well, it was a it was a bumpy it was a bumpy road certainly. So we um, the game took a lot longer than we expected, which is the theme of all game development. So we, we were kind of doing that for a long time, uh, and then we we met Kieran Gillen. Um, he wrote a blog post called how to use and abuse the gaming press. And he was talking about the stuff that introversion had done and how they got uplink reviewed in PC gamer. And we just thought, okay, well, he's written this blog post about how to do it. We will, we'll sort of take him at his word. We got in contact with him and said, Hey, you know, we're making an indie game and can we come and meet you? And can we, can we show it to you? And, and he just said, yeah, that's fine. So we, we went to Bath and went to the pub with him. Um, and then sort of ended up going into PC gamer and taking the game in there. And it became, quite clear quite quickly that the game was a bit funky and (laughs) it it, it was like we were getting some kind of like raised eyebrows and some sort of like you know oh it's good that you've that you've done this
0: i (laughs) admire your initiative
1: (laughs) right exactly um So we sort of knew that the game had some issues Uh, and then it came out and it actually got some reasonable reviews. I think it got seven out of ten somewhere and we won an award for an indie gaming site called Game Tunnel, which I think is defunct now. So we kind of it was a mix uh, and we had some sort of diehard players who who had been playing, you know, testing for us and they liked it. Uh, But we really needed to get on Steam and i i didn't know you know nobody knew how to get on steam at that point there were very very few indie games on Steam. i think what it was just a time, time was
0: this like just uh 2006. okay
1: yeah um so i knew that uh, ragdoll kung fu was made by a british guy called mark healy who now uh, owns media molecule um but at the time i think he he just left lionhead to that. I think he'd been working at Ragdoll Kung Fu partially while he was at Lionhead with their blessing. So I emailed him and said hello, uh, how did you get on Steam? And he, he told me. He said this is the person I spoke to and, and this is what happened. Um, and I tried to email that person. I didn't get a reply. So I ended up phoning up uh, Valve's office and going through their switchboard and just trying to find people's answer phones. Um, and you know, eventually found the answer phone of a person and left a message there. And they agreed to look at the game, which was tremendously exciting. And then they said, "No, we don't want to have this on Steam. Sorry."
0: <laughs> <laughs> so the whole dream. It's a, a disappointed end to that story.
1: Yeah, it was. It was good. You know, I, I was trying to build this whole narrative. I was saying to Ian, "You know, I'll get it. I'll get it on Steam. I know I can do it. I can, I believe I can do it." We kind of got to the final hurdle, which is someone actually looking at the game. And then they went, "No, this is too weird. <laughs> we we don't like it." <laughs> so that was really that was really good sort of wake up call uh, of like, you know, okay, we don't know how to make something good yet um we had a retail publisher for that game who uh um let's just say did not meet their contractual obligations and uh i i went to have a meeting with this guy and he was driving around with copies of the game in the boot of his car just loads and loads of copies of it trying to flog them uh at various events and we never saw any money from that so that that was that completely petered out and we just thought you know what are we going to do now and then we then a company got in contact with us and they said hey you know your game looks really interesting we're making a hardware uh controller um which is a 3d haptic controller so you you can move this sort of arm around in three-dimensional space and it will exert force on your hand uh like you're kind of feeling a surface or like you're using a sword we had a, a mouse controlled sword fighting game can can you make a version of it for us can we license it um and we said yeah okay uh, and they ended up paying us to do uh, various work on on porting games for this controller called the novent falcon um absolutely lovely company Novint. um they were really really great and i don't know uh, if i remember it, that it was a bit obscure it didn't really make that much headway in the uk um it's in an eddie Sounds murphy movie. Fun. there's an eddie murphy movie where i can't remember which it might be meet dave if that's the correct title oh wait, he's where he's the spaceship yes that's right yeah it's the big the big version of eddie murphy there's like lots of tiny eddie murphy's inside <laughs> controlling him and the, the like controls what a terrifying are, pitch that is isn't it? i know it's, well eddie murphy's late career is terrifying in general but <laughs> uh yeah the controls for this this eddie murphy are novent falcons so if you want to go and and see one, that's where you can see it. Um, yeah. So so we did we did a whole load of things for them, um, and that really enabled us. That funded Frozen Synapse. That's um,
0: that's fascinating. Like I'm going to take a brief aside to talk about the Nova Falcon. Because do it. because you. It wasn't just your game. You said you ended up porting quite a few other games for it.
1: Yeah, we worked on two or three, two or three different like, things. What are those
0: games like? That's such a specific input method, like a sword fighting game. <laughs> Oh, perfect! That works. Right. That's probably quite satisfying. Like, yep. immediately, my mind goes to the gutter for anything else. Like, what? What were the other games that that we, would have
1: used? It? We worked on a game called Arctic Stud Poker Run,
0: okay, which
1: was a snowmobile poker game. the The talk engine at that time seemed to attract really strange game concepts. So we had our flying sword fighting, and they had their snowmobile poker um and what uh, what, what is
0: the hook to snowmobile poker
1: well you're you're riding a snowmobile and you're collecting poker cards and you're as you go down the slope and you're trying to make the best hand that you can okay it was a cool game actually it was pretty fun and it was fun with the falcon um so we we worked on that and and a, a couple of a couple of other things um and we also did some work during this time on tv quiz shows so the, the reason that all this stuff happened was I was always sort of looking at what we had, which was the ability to work with some specific technology. So this game engine um, and also ability to, you know, I've, I've always been fairly happy kind of going and meeting people, meeting company and going, you know, what, what are your needs? Is there anything that we can we can reasonably fit in for? So I had a friend who worked in TV and for some money I went to do some graphics operating on various quiz shows and he was—he just happened to mention, oh, it'd be really good if we could do this. Really good if we could do that. And I went to Ian and said, okay, they want to do this stuff. And he said, well, that they just need a game engine. That all of that stuff would be really easy to do in a game engine. Why don't we work on some technology for them to, to, uh, to use the game engine with their systems?
0: So, um, so we did that. That's. Uh, can you talk about what that was, or what the show was, and what you used? Or yeah,
1: so um, we. It, it's a. The technical side of it, it, it evades me slightly, um, but it was to do with special graphics cards that uh, that were used. On these quiz shows, and we basically wrote some software to enable the talk engine to to communicate with that graphics card. So it's kind of fairly low levelish stuff. But what were the quiz um, shows though? That was that oh was yeah. What so the shows. Huh? Uh, well, uh, it's it was on Weakest Link. Uh, we did the reboot of Going for Gold. We did some stuff on Krypton Factor. There was a
0: reboot of Going for Gold.
1: It was a short-lived reboot of Going for Gold with Henry um,
0: Kelly still. I don't think it was. Don't think it was. Oh, um, How did that I
1: actually, I actually worked on Eggheads for a bit. That was quite fun. I did, did studio days on Eggheads. Um, Wogan's Perfect Recall. Nobody will remember that one. Uh, <laughs> it's ironic. Late, late uh, <laughs> yeah, it's very true, very true. Late, late career Terry Wogan vehicle. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, good times. And that was interesting. So it was a different industry. Uh, and got to sort of see behind the scenes on that. That's so uh, interesting. I think some of our tech is still used on the chase, I believe.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah do you get to get, get royalties for that no though. no chance, no chance. <laughs> um, so that
1: was all, that was all through you know this this long established company that had worked doing doing these graphics so we just provided um, a very small component of, of what what they did um and uh, yeah so so that was, that was just...
0: i mean it's interesting like it's interesting talking to you about this like i've, I've spoken to a lot of indie developers in that uh, you seem to approach it from a very sort of pragmatic point of view which I think a lot of it's kind of one of the tricky things about, about not tricky things but interesting things I think about game development is, is the kind of the, that line between art and craft you know it's like here's yeah. we have a yeah. very specific set of tools and skills which can go anywhere but also this this can be a purely artistic art form and like finding <laughs> the balance I think seems to be the key to longevity for a lot of people
1: Right, and that was always a difficult discussion with us. It was hugely hard on Ian because he had to work on this quite in depth you know, technical stuff and, and, and TV shows are very demanding and, and, and specs can change at the absolute last minute. You know, you'd be called in. like, Oh, here's like a hundred features that we need because some exec wandered into the room and was like, Hmm, I think we need the graphics to spin round now. Um, so you have all that stuff very hot <laughs> on Ian. And he was trying to do creative work on frozen signups at the same time. Cause the whole point was, you know, we were trying to make frozen science. We, we had this game that we, that we wanted to make. Uh, it was a design that Ian had had in his head for years and really wanted to do. And we were always you know, trying to make money from our original games. So, so that was definitely difficult um and it was the it was the beta frozen science beta that we did you, you could you could buy the game and get beta access that funded the rest of development and meant that we could largely sort of leave that other work behind and really focus on what we wanted to do so we're, we're very much kind of community funded from that point onwards
0: well i'm going to take a, a brief aside before we talk about that some more uh, and ask you some relatively quick fire questions okay uh, okay so uh paul if you had to play a game with death for your own mortal soul what game are you best at Uh
1: oh, wow um what game am i best at probably starcraft 2 but that that would rely on death not have spent not have having that much time to spend in it so probably starcraft 2
0: are you um like are you a particularly competitive gamer have you ever been locked in a Particularly fierce high score battle with somebody. Yes, I once had to play
1: a very difficult community member at Frozen Synapse, and I really wanted to prove I could beat him because he kept claiming to know more about the game than we did, and I did. So that was satisfying.
0: Again, that's that's a a story with a very disappointing ending. It's <laughs> like, yeah, I, we made this game, and uh, one of the players said they were better at at it than us, uh, but he wasn't. We beat him. <laughs> i love bathos you know no- nothing more pathetic than indie game development um if you are if you're prone to such things paul uh what has been your worst rage quit uh
1: it, almost every single time i've played rocket league in the last year oh really yeah i get i'm uh, very frustrated with bad teammates in rocket league i can't i just can't deal with it sometimes
0: <laughs> um does it involve anything broken or is this just general like oh for goodness sake it's, it's uh, that that is more of a just, like, I've just turned the
1: console off. <laughs> Cause, but no uh, no smashing. I used to get pretty angry with StarCraft. When I was trying to get better at StarCraft, I would be really angry with myself. Because in StarCraft, you always
0: know what you've done wrong. Yeah. So I would blame myself for everything. Um, okay. Uh, has there ever been a game that's kind of consumed your life to the point where you've had to uninstall it or get rid of it because it was becoming a problem?
1: Uh tap titans which is a
0: clicker oh yes
1: yeah i started playing that and i was it was when i was looking up like reddit threads about how to optimize what i was doing and i just thought okay well i played this game to try and understand this genre of games and now i'm like i'm spending time analyzing it and it's just terrible so i that was
0: i quit at that point it's weird that like we were talking earlier about kind of games that kind of occupy your brain in a kind of nice way in the kind of like uh yeah, you know, on the back burner type thing and those sort of games they they occupy my brain like so fully and so completely and mm. that it's like they are t- like massively compulsive like to me and i can't stop until mm. i've exhausted them and uh, but they as soon as i'm not playing them they're just gone i don't think about it yeah, it's such I, a weird
1: I... thing I had the same experience with Universal clips. That's, uh, that's exactly
0: I, what I was thinking of because oh, that's amazing, the last right. one that I got really... Like, I yeah. just couldn't stop and I had stuff to do. I'm like, why yeah. am I still... Because, because in my head, I'm like, it has to be an end point at some... It has to stop eventually. Yeah. And then it just right. doesn't.
1: I know. I got. I had. I was leaving it running, sort of, on my PC upstairs, and I just kept coming up to check it. Like, what if? What if it's, they've introduced a new gate thing that need? You know, you have to buy the right technology to get yes. through the gate, and I'm missing it, and I'm just doing this redundant thing. Really brilliant design. Uh, but I got to the space exploration bit, and I couldn't. There wasn't really anything to do, so I sort of. Seen
0: how I seen I didn't get that far. I got to the bit yeah. where there was nothing but paper clips,
1: right? And you were <laughs> right. just kind of reharvesting the world. Converting matter into yeah, there's so there are there is stuff that happens after that. There's some kind of funny end stuff um, but uh, to be honest, I, I think I'd I think it had actually sort of prevented me from From doing any more optimization and I felt cheated by the game at that point. So I so I quit um, But that's it, it definitely if you haven't played universal Paperclips, Even if you don't if you're not interested in uh, in that kind of game, I do recommend that it's it's a it's an interesting yeah, bit no, It's games. good. It's good. Yeah,
0: but it's yeah, it's too good. Like <laughs> there, there is a. Certain, uh, this is part of my personality as well, which I've mentioned on the show before. That I can't. There are certain games that I avoid because I know I will get sucked into them, and regardless of how much fun I might be having, the guilt I feel afterwards will override any enjoyment I've had. So I just, <laughs> I, I just steer clear of them completely. Right, it's a thing for another day. Yeah. Um, uh, Paul, one of the rare. Actually, no. I'm going to ask you this one first. Uh, do you have a game that is kind of your, your chicken soup game, a game you go back to for, for comfort?
1: Um, yeah, let me think about that one for a second. Oh, probably Wing Commander Privateer. I replay that fairly regularly. Um, I absolutely love the world in that. Uh, so I mentioned Wing Commander was sort of one of those early PC games. I don't think I, I know Wing Commander Privateer. Oh, under, such an underrated game. It's an open world game. Um, and when and, did this come out? When did it come out? I think it might be ninety-seven. Let me just—I need to I have to Google this now. Uh, I must—I must know. No, ninety-three. That I always think it's later. Always think it's later than it is. Yeah, an open-world game in, in, in ninety-three. So you had um, this kind of whole like quadrant of a galaxy that you could go around. You could go to any system, um, and it was all the Wing Commander universe. So you had the silly the silly war with the Kilrathi, um, the kind of cat people. But you were behind the front line of the war. So you were operating this kind of like Wild West trading environment. Um, And there is a plot which you can follow. But the glorious thing about the plot is that it's only there if you go to a specific space station. Uh, You don't have to engage with it at all. And Um, you're flying around in spaceships, I'm assuming. Yeah, so it's, it's elite meets wing commander. Okay. Uh, with all the sort of schlocky acting and the silly and the silly stuff but it's just it's an absolutely wonderful game it's so immersive um, and the combat is really good because they just used the combat mechanics from Wing Commander but added a whole load of stuff to that um, and there are just these various different factions that will fight each other um, it, it's just a it's a truly incredible game and I, I have no idea why it, it it's not as it's not as popular as it should be but um, that is a game that I will I will dip back into occasionally just
0: to get that sense of the world again and it still has the same effect on me that's fascinating um i'm gonna have to look that up uh the la- last question for this the quick fires is um you know g- games are able to you know portray a whole d- a breadth of emotion but one of the rarest is still uh, laughter so paul what games have really made you laugh uh sam and max definitely just the the world's
1: largest ball of twine and all that stuff uh the kind of crazy american sideshow stuff definitely made me laugh
0: that's a good like often people bring up monkey island but for me it was always sam and max sam and max was the funniest Mm -hmm. game i'd ever played in my life but it's, it's not as sort of fondly thought of at least through the people i've spoken to it was just a. It was just that sort of.
1: I'd never seen a game depict a crap holiday. Well like, that's just such a specific <laughs> thing to depict in a game, uh, and and I I loved that so much. Uh, it had really
0: good contextual moments as well, where you know you keep trying to get Sam. Which one is which? I always forget. Sam is the. the Sam's dog. the dog,
1: and Max is the hyperkinetic yeah. rabbity thing.
0: And you yes. keep trying to get Sam to pick something up, and it, it just triggers this whole sort of sequence of. Like, yeah. you know, self-reflexive breaking the fourth wall like uh, comedy that they've just they've put that in for people who are going to do that. And it's like, yeah, it's like you found the secrets sort of surprise. And it's just it's so delightful and funny and yeah, so good. When I
1: was a bit younger, uh, Space Quest as well, uh, particularly like Space Quest 6 had some pretty, pretty good jokes. There's a fish that you get near the start of the game. And it just keep you you keep losing it, and it keeps coming back like a character will just say, "Don't forget your fish," and throw it at you at the end of a cutscene, and you can't get rid of it. And for some reason, <laughs> I think probably growing up with King's Quest and sort of this, the the ridiculousness of those games, to see something mocking that and, and kind of the the Sierra in jokes and stuff in that game, not so much sort of as an adult, but definitely as a as a as a kid playing, yeah. game, I just thought that was so so hilarious. A yeah, from
0: the same sort of era, I, I suppose, was the, the Earthworm gym um right, cow right launched at the end of the level that was the funniest thing i'd ever seen when i was like nine but yeah and worms as well definitely yeah uh, some of the later like, worm stuff um, can't yeah. be a funny accent <laughs> <Indeed>. <laughs> um okay so so how how like with all of this kind of contract work eventually you said you, you did the beta and then you were able to kind of finish the game like was that did that feel like demonstrably different like because obviously you all honed your your skills in the intervening years before the the original game like did it feel i guess i guess like over the last in this that that kind of time period i'm thinking like mm. the, the world of indie development would have changed so much so quickly like did, did that feel like was that a noticeable thing for you
1: well between sort of 2006 when we did our first game and 2011 when when fs came out it wasn't that different Um, There were people around who we knew who were successful, like uh, Cliff Harris, um, who does, uh, his company's called Positech, he does games like Democracy uh, and Production Line is his his new game. Gratuitous Space Battles had come out. And that was, we knew, I met him at uh, Nottingham Game City, the the kind of event that we were at, uh, the same people organised, organised event called Game City. Uh, And he was a successful indie dev and he'd been working on indie games for years before Steam. And he was massively helpful to us in terms of sort of, you know, sharing data and, uh, and various other things and, and sort of encouraging us to, to keep going. So we, we knew a bit more about kind of how it worked. Um, and then when the beta for FS came out, you know, this was the first thing that we'd done that was successful um it was made more money than we kind of ever expected even at that stage and we got a really amazing positive write-up uh on rps kieran again um did this fantastic write-up for preview for the game um uh, the whole thing was sort of based around trying to get people to pre-order it which is kind of an amazing amazing thing for a journalist to write um so so then we knew that we we could both afford to finish it and that it was really worth finishing you know it was it was worth doing and we got to a after that preview came out we got an email from valve saying have you considered putting your game on steam oh so you um,
0: know that's that's a nice coder to the story Now there, there you it's, go it's see I, I can i can do story structure <laughs> um and that was incredible that
1: was incredible that was an enormous enormous triumphant moment and and just this this thing that we didn't you know necessarily know was going to happen so uh, so yeah that, that was kind of when everything changed for us um and then the game came out and and did well and uh, we we'd also through the whole of determinants we've been submitting to the igf uh this sort of um san francisco gdc type indie game awards thing uh, and we get rejected 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 like three or four times because you could submit your game as many times as you wanted um and then we we won the igf audience award and we were nominated in the design category alongside stuff like spelunky and uh, various other things. And and so that was, again, sort of a big turnaround from where we started.
0: And um, I suppose, like, with that, you know, in, in the classic kind of story style, like, you kind of... You, uh, this sounds demeaning. I don't mean it sounds demeaning. It's like you, you're finding your way in the first game. You're kind of fumbling a few things here and there and figuring it out. And then you make the next game, and it's, it's like it's a hit. Then yeah. it's like, oh, my God, now what? Like, <laughs> the, the panic would set in, surely. It's like, well, what do we do? How do we follow that up? Well, we were... I think
1: because we'd gone through that period of, of the company really not having much money and, and, and really having to kind of work on getting the next contract product in, we were always very careful about cash. So we knew that we wanted to keep kind of cash in the company that would, would enable us to keep going if something didn't work. Um, so we did some DLC and that did very well. We did an iPad version and that did very well. Um, and then we moved on to doing Frozen Cortex, which was a very expensive game to make. We, we did sort of full three D. We hired friends who were kind of ex AAA artists and animators. We put a lot of a lot of effort into that, and that had a bit of a troubled development. It kind of went backwards and forwards design wise a few times, uh, and came out, and it and it didn't do particularly well. Um, but because we we sort of had that background of kind of running a company and sort of full awareness that things could fail. We managed to keep going and we were profitable the entire time we were making that game So even though we did spend a fair amount of money on developing it, we, we didn't kind of bet the farm on it Yeah, uh, and that was so so we had that kind of The difficult second album for us, I think, was was trying to change, trying to take frozen science gameplay and then change something aesthetically. And the aesthetic change didn't work and people didn't understand what the game was. And so they missed out on on the gameplay. I think subsequently the games continued to sell and we've done, you know, various things with it uh, that have kind of got it out there a bit more. And it did get pretty good reviews. So it it has kind of in the long term uh, eventually kind of turned around and started making money. Um, but at the time, it was it was definitely disappointing and definitely, you know, I, I did a talk at GDC in the Failure Workshop, which is an amazing session at GDC, uh, and talked about sort of how the concept didn't resonate with people. So we learned enormous amounts doing that as well.
0: That's, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's so interesting. You mentioned actually, like, just before we started recording that you were currently in, in prep for GDC. And yeah. I think we both see that very differently. Like, in my head, I was like, oh, that's very exciting. And you're like, no, it's not. Because <laughs> because I'm at, like... It's a weird one. Again, this kind of goes back to the kind of whole, the odd way that games kind of, there's such a kind of cultural force and people can be very precious about it and, you know, define their character by it in some, in some aspects. And yet essentially that is, I mean, it's a business conference. It's where you go to meet people and get coverage and make sure the right people see your game and stuff. So it's not, it's not this wonderful, exciting thing necessarily. Yeah, work, I, I've always, you know? I've always treated it as a work thing
1: rather than a socializing thing. And I, I know for a lot of people, it's it's kind of, you know, their time to go out and party. And, and then and there is there is stuff to, to go to. And, and that's fine. But the last few years have definitely been, you know, it's my one shot to do West Coast US press for the year, really. So I have to try and get around everywhere that I can. Um, every time I've been to GDC, I've had some really useful thing come out of it and I feel like there's some pressure on me to sort of deliver that every every time, you know. And that all of those things happen by chance. You know, you happen to meet someone, you're standing next to someone, you hear about something from someone else. Um so it's always quite intense and and setting it up is always always challenging. I mean it's exciting at the time. It's it's sort of just psyching yourself up to do it and and getting prepared and everything and spending the time away is is a bit difficult. I feel Um, like
0: you're quite good like you seem to have a very kind of good Personality match for that as well. Like I'm sure for a lot of people, it's not as easy, you know, just to be like phoning a bunch of people and arranging a bunch of meetings and stuff. It's like the, the the sort of social anxiety that can come with that. I think can stop a lot of people in their tracks. I have
1: had sort of when I was younger, I was really shy, and that kind of goes back to like the the stuff you were mentioning about games you know, being a social thing. Um, I was really shy and and I was bullied quite a lot when I I was younger. And I definitely made a conscious decision at one point in my life to just sort of not care, to really throw all of that stuff out. Um, And being – one of the best things about the games industry is it genuinely tries to be welcoming. Uh, more welcoming for for some people than others. And there's a lot of work still to be done on making sure the games industry is a good place for everyone. But uh, in the main, it is at least trying to be open and welcoming. And so that was when I sort of started my professional life. I really responded well to that. I was just so happy to be in an environment where people who had different beliefs about business, about art, about creativity they would all talk to each other and they'd all have a happy healthy conversation with debate and argument and but they'd all be friends at the end of the day and that's very much not like you know not like the tv industry which we had some experience of you know that's very cutthroat industry uh, and games games is not cutthroat at least not at the at the sort of low indie end so in terms of that stuff like do i find it easier i, I definitely do find it easier than some people because i think i, I was lucky and i was able to sort of Deal with some of that social stuff when I was younger and really kind of put it away and yeah. go like, no, I don't I don't need to feel those negative feelings about social situations at all. And now I'm, I'm lucky in that I don't. But but it is very hard for some people um, and people are always sort of developing themselves as they as they work on games and kind of get further into. The games industry such as it is i think some people have a, a really hard time with that and feel like they have to go to conferences and feel like they have to behave in a certain way or whatever and, and you just don't there's many different ways paths to achieving things that you want to achieve um so so yeah no i i, I definitely feel like I, I i know i'm in this position of of luck when it comes to that definitely
0: yeah no i i find it like really i find that kind of the 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 kind of this has come up on the show before and i don't know maybe we spoke about it when i was in nottingham but the kind of the and this isn't just you for games as well this is most creative industries is that you know a lot of it is the people that you know i mean that that is just a yeah. fact of of life and it can be quite difficult to kind of um because i, I was similar to you like i'm i'm i am still i think very shy but i'm just i'm able to kind of switch that off Right, <laughs> because because I'm, I'm I'm a writer. I have to meet people. I have to yep. arrange coffees for people and hope that we can build a relationship and all that. That that is part of my job that I have to do. Yeah, um, and that kind of separation can be quite. I think you need to. Get, it's hard to kind of rationalize that, you know. If, yeah. If if you're if you, if you have any kind of sort of social anxiety, you be like, no, 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 it doesn't matter. This is mm-hmm. this is a different thing to me. We're not necessarily going to be best pals. You yes, know? exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that's a really tricky thing, but a super important thing for an industry where it is really good to know people and build relationships with people because that's just that's just the way of the world uh, uh, as it is. Yeah, the good thing about games is that I think you can
1: genuinely learn something from anyone else who yes. works in or on games. So that that makes me when I talk to someone who's way more successful than me or works for a big company or whatever. I I feel like if they're not giving me the time of day and it it does happen quite a a lot Still, I've said games is a friendly place, but but you will get people who just don't care and won't give you the time of day that that I feel like they might be missing out on something and similarly If I meet someone who is new to games or a new indie developer or a student or They're at school and they want to learn how to make games the things that you talk about with them will will be really informative So it it just boils down to being interested in and having affection for other people and if, if you if you have those two things Uh, and you manage to retain them then uh, you'll be able to get on and make friends and have find people who help you out um but again uh, to to stress that this is my own experience and i know that a a lot of other people have had very alienating experiences with particularly games events and that's something that um every time i get an opportunity to influence that or or change that or you know talk to people about improving that I, i do try and take that Opportunity, absolutely. Because I want, I want everyone to have those those good experiences that I've had.
0: Yeah, because I mean, it all it all helps everybody. You know, there is it, it is a kind of a win win situation for everyone involved because yeah, everyone yeah. gets better from it. Exactly. Um, yeah. I'm I'm very conscious that we haven't spoken uh, much about music, so before we kind of finish up, I wanted to talk about kind of. The, the kind of the, the game music that kind of had a particular resonance or impact on you that, right. that stick out in your head as being like oh that's very good for that very specific reason
1: yeah well I mentioned Nintendo World Cup as just being the, the first sort of thing that I really noticed in terms of game music just that's funny Really funny chord progression, which which was just because of, you know, it was a Japanese game and I hadn't really been exposed to that kind of musical composition and, and Mario as well. You know, just just hearing that stuff and also the, you know, the nature of the sound chip in the in the NES and uh, sort of alien sounds, alien synthesized sounds. So that definitely had a big impression on me. Uh, I remember and Doom uh, was was a big one. You know, I, I never heard like metal general midi before general <laughs> midi was always like plinky plonky sound and then to have like a metal soundtrack in the game is just utterly utterly bizarre um and then sort of fast forwarding a lot in time i mean the music in deus ex is amazing but i remember stuff like yes kids music for hitman blood money uh particularly oh, that was so good just just incredibly good i think i mentioned all of this uh, on the previous episode but but it's it doesn't hurt to revisit um just the sound design in that the the, the fact that it sort of was this like kind of electronic movie score stuff that really showed me that you could do interesting interesting music in games i'd always i've been frustrated with a lot of game music there was a really bad trend certainly in the 2000s for like cinematic like percussive action cues the whole time uh, and that was sort of ultra ultra tedious um, and I liked melodies. Uh, so I, my mission was always to kind of put melodic content into soundtrack stuff. Um, and I, I was, uh, the a lot of the sort of mass of bad game music really, really inspired me. Uh, a composer, a composer who had a, another sort of big influence on me was, was Richard Jakes. Um, and his, his work kind of across a whole bunch of games, even sort of was called headhunter like one of the early games he did uh, and obviously sonic and various other things and um just having that he he really had a kind of uh, like a film composer mindset almost he just wanted everything to be as good as possible um and it was really refreshing for me to see that in the context of a lot of game music which is done very much under the gun and 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 sort of very tight deadlines and so on so I, i i yeah a lot of my stuff is a kind of a reaction against game music Uh, but you've seen that totally change now you know every indie game has a cool soundtrack now
0: yes Um,
1: so we've been left in the dust
0: (laughs) is there like i mean you're talking about kind of this trend for like big orchestral percussive pieces is there Mm. i mean this is a really difficult question though but like in terms of like the the comparisons between like a film score and and a game soundtrack like is there uh a demonstrable, intangible thing that makes them different because, in both cases, I feel like the, the, their purpose is to be kind of uh to not be distracting except when they need to be at a specific moment. Like, I always think of like the, the John Williams score is a very easy example where there is because you talk about Melody, there is that amazing hook that it, everyone knows, and then but then right. it, it kind of goes away and it's still there. And then it sort of swells and comes back again, and that kind of rides the mood of the, the piece. But if you're doing a game that has kind of a, a more emergent kind of potential stories in it, like how do, you, how do you marry the two? I asked about a thousand questions there, so <laughs> hopefully you got the gist of it.
1: I think one of the difficult things, uh, I don't like kind of um, interactive music or dynamic music systems in games. They tend to result in bad music. So I like pieces of music that have a start, middle, and end and aren't controlled by the gameplay. If you look at Twitch when someone's playing a game, particularly a multiplayer game, they'll just put on normal music, but normal music that's kind of tonally appropriate. And I like there's so many brilliant composers who do interactive music stunningly. I mean, it kind of started with Eamon Tobin, Splinter Cell Chaos Theory. Uh, That was really pioneering. And Eamon Tobin's a great choice of person to do that. Um, People like Jason Graves uh, with his Dead Space stuff, you know, you can't get better versions of of interactive music, and I said I like melodies, and they're both those composers who sort of work with atonal stuff really well. So there is some appreciation that I have for that. But ultimately, like the game music, I really like is pieces of music. You know, I really love the soundtrack from Command and Conquer, where you just had a jukebox and you could pick which one of these crazy songs you could listen to. Streets of Rage Two was was coherent pieces of music. Um, so. I did a survey once of our community, Frozen Signups community, and I said, like, do you prefer music in games that is full piece of music or interactive music? And it came back almost universally full pieces of music. So these are the things that people like. And I think that although you can do cool stuff with the technology, the technology shouldn't dominate. And actually, you can write a an album that is an accompaniment to a game and just play it, have it play in the game. Um, you can do some stuff, you know, and obviously it doesn't work for every every type of game. But for for strategy stuff, I think you know you can have that thing of of it's just music that plays in the background, and music that goes with the games, uh, rather than sort of specific soundtracky stuff. So that's the thing I like working on most.
0: Amazing. Um, well, before we finish up, then I just wanted to kind of get up to date and think like, are there games like in the past few years that have that stand out for you as being particularly significant for for just whatever reason?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I always sort of go, kind of range around a little bit. I, Hotline Miami, I think, is one of the best indie games. And oh, it's incredible. I remember playing that. I played that all the way through in a hotel room in the middle of the night. It's just the most perfect setting for that game. And I hadn't had an indie game that had quite clicked with me in quite the same way. And it was such a singular experience and so brilliant. I, re- I remember that one very strongly. Um... But other so I mentioned Prison Architect. That's kind of been the, the one for me recently. Rocket League is uh, just a game that I can play at any time. You know, if I have five or 10 minutes spare and I want to relax, I'll play a Rocket League match. Um, that that was a, a big deal for me. And Starcraft 2, again, Starcraft 2 really helped me through the end of development on Frozen Synapse, mostly watching it, uh, it as my first of eSports experience, but through watching it i got into playing it and i really got into the meta game and really into sort of figuring out um how the game was evolving seeing how people were playing it seeing different strategies come into play um and that was a really unique experience for me i'd never had a, a game like that as a kid i wasn't really into multiplayer games i liked sort of single player story so to get properly into a multiplayer game and actually care you know when a when a balance patch came out have that be meaningful for me um was really cool so i've i kind of ranged around different Different modern stuff. Rocket League's been the one that's stuck with me the longest out of out of recent games. But I'm always waiting for something to come come along and just sort of coax me out of trying to be productive the whole time.
0: So (laughs) I'm always open to it. I do like I I was thinking about Hotline Miami uh, again the other day because actually I I contacted um, the developers uh, about coming on the show and it's. it's it's one of the few games i think in recent years that i will i i i always return to and and Mm. and specifically hotline miami one as well like i have the sequel too and i really like that but there's just there's some something so specific about the first one uh, that i just maybe it's because i've kind of played it multiple times that it just it's such a satisfying game to play yeah like the it's all so so physically just good you know, and it's so simple, but it's, again, I think probably a big part of that is the sound as well, because it has such a, a sort of powerful, evocative yeah. sound design and, and soundtrack. Like, it's it's amazing. W- wonderful music. Uh, again, coherent pieces of music. There you go. You see. Yeah. Uh, and I think they just sort of scoured, way. like, sound and stuff for yeah. undiscovered artists. And it's like, oh, we like that. Can we use that in our game?
1: And wow. and really sort of defined a genre almost with, yeah, their, with absolutely. That, that sort of curation of that soundtrack. um Yeah, brilliant. And, and I love it. games that are able to sort of execute on a discrete new mechanic and do it really well. I'm really excited for um, Into the Breach um by the FTL. Oh, the FTL guys, yeah, just, yeah um, I think um, that comes out uh, as, of, as of recording tomorrow, so out when people listen to this.
0: I'm um, but
1: yeah, it looks really like they've kind of Done some really new tactical gameplay stuff that will be super interesting to look at. So I, I spoke like to them That's last cool.
0: year on the on the show about about what while they were kind of mid development, I guess, mm-hmm. and it just sounded like it sounded like the Advance Wars sequel that I've always wanted. Yes, so uh, yeah, I, super
1: super super Advance Wars with a, with a lot of twists thrown in, um, and also Phoenix Point looks really good. Julian Gollop's new thing uh, saw that. Oh, I do not know anything about that. Ah, uh, yeah, so it's it's kind of like he's taken the design lessons of the modern XCOM games. And then reapplied them to his own more complex design so all the UI and everything looks like XCOM but you have destructible buildings you have gigantic massive enemies you have like a whole management thing uh, it looks oh, individual limb targeting of enemies and stuff like that it looks absolutely brilliant
0: uh, so, yeah, that's I immediately start to be like oh, I don't know that's maybe one of those ones that I might need to stay away from <laughs> Because <laughs> I definitely had that with XCOM, where it's like no, this is this is too it, much.
1: Right, it's uh, it, it's dangerous, but it's um, too good,
0: and there's no end in sight. I can just yeah. keep playing this forever. Yeah,
1: it, it's it's going to be it's going to be good, I think. Um, so yeah, so it's nice to feel excited about about some stuff that's coming out again. Though that's kind of a, a bit rare for me now. But there's definitely there's definitely stuff I want to play a lot.
0: And so when uh, like I, maybe you don't have a hard date in mind. Like, have you got a, a vague date in mind for for Frozen Synapse Two? It needs to be this year. It will definitely
1: be this year. We have been saying that for two years, but now it's actually <laughs> true. Uh, we, we've really, I think we're just about on the downhill stretch now. We're we're making lots of content, so lots of level stuff going in, lots of sort of setups for the random generators going in. We know what the main gameplay is. <laughs> Finally, it always seemed to change direction with every game we make uh, midstream. Is it um, fun? Do so you yeah. enjoy playing it? Yes, uh, it's definitely fun uh, at the moment getting levels in every time I get a new level in and play it. I'm really excited to play it. Uh, it feels a lot more... So Frozen Synapse is sort of a very puzzle, sort of problem-solving game. Okay. And this has that sort of element to it. Well, uh Sort of solving emergent puzzles, if you will. Um, Frozen Synapse 2, there's a, in the single player, it feels a lot more like kind of SWAT team stuff. Like you're trying to move through a space, cover every exit. You don't know exactly what's going to happen. There's a bit, bit more limited information stuff in this. So you have to make sort of more intuitive calls some of the time, um, and that feels really atmospheric and really good. I've been replaying um, Irrational's game SWAT 4, oh, the, so uh, the FPS F- one, and I want because I want to get some of that atmosphere in uh and just try and do maybe a little bit of that sort of environmental storytelling e level design stuff in our little 2d way uh and try and get some of that in there as well so uh, i'm very excited for frozen Apps to uh just uh, to play it when it's when it's finished i'm looking forward to playing it and that's always <laughs> a really good sign it's always um, a good sign
0: yeah. um well i think we've covered pretty much everything here paul that was super fun um but if there's nothing if there's anything that kind of hasn't come up that you wanted to mention please take this opportunity or just you know let people know where they can find out about your video games and all that too uh, well thank you yeah i think we've kind of covered everything that was that was really good
1: fun cheers so i'm mode seven games on twitter it's probably the best place uh to find me and uh, ask me inane questions on there i'm always happy to reply
0: good i'm not gonna talk about the the calendar thing that's thanks that's your own thing that's your own thing Um, let's not go there let's not okay well that was there that was super fun um was that was that that was good yeah you enjoyed that yeah really good yeah yeah really really good. good covered lots of stuff
2: What the- my- I stretch the art form without straining too much hype not enough brain in whole lot of money little maintaining whole lot of complaining no plan little more no less than 10 grand blinging i sitting nice in your hand too much plat, i know i'm not enough lap he boy i make the paper rise never bet anything like this fake car guys we got my island scotland task. Every section when my connection last? he boy i make the cargo loops Never had a desire for shiny suits. No. Big up my Europe. You want same troops? Any place my face covers up, uprooted. Get your back up, back up, back off the wall. Stand to the I startin' busy rock school. Don't give it half right, give it all. Pull up your socks and stand up fool Back up, back up, back off the wall. Stand to the left, and busy rock school. Don't give it half right, give it all. Pull up your socks and stand up tall. So my East side crew get paper from my West side. I'm gonna start off